You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. A purpose-driven life or ministry, or having purpose being at the center of your life and ministry without calling to your mind an entire movement that seems to be sweeping our country, and yet it is the idea of having a purpose that really defines what Paul is talking about that we're going to be looking at this morning in Acts chapter 20. You probably read the title of the sermon on your insert or in the bulletin, The Purposeful Ministry, and probably right in your mind immediately you thought of either the purpose-driven life or 40 days of purpose, and There is a nugget of truth to the whole purpose-driven emphasis. That nugget of truth is that you and I can have and should have one thing at the center of our lives that compels us to do everything that we do. Nobody would object to that. No good Christian would object to that. The problem comes when the emphasis is on Man and the purpose is man-centered rather than God-centered. That's where the problem enters in. It's about you finding your purpose so you can be happy, joyful, successful, enjoyable, fun to be around, have a better business, better family, better marriage, and it's all about you. The marketing mania. we got purpose-driven refrigerator magnets and license plate frames and T-shirts, books, journals, Bibles, Korans, prayer rugs. Almost everything you can imagine, we've got it related somehow to a purpose-driven something. Let me tell you what Scripture says about purpose. You exist for the glory of God. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, God will be glorified through you. He will either be glorified through your salvation, or His mercy and His justice and His wrath will be on display, and thus He will be glorified by your damnation. So whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, God is going to be glorified through you and you exist for the glory of God. Therefore, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all to the glory of God. That's simple enough, isn't it? You exist for the glory of God. Therefore, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, you can't market that, can you? You can't. You can put that on a refrigerator magnet, but it's not going to sell. It's not marketable. It's not market savvy. It's not saleable. And yet, that is the purpose and the philosophy, that is the thing that drove the Apostle Paul. You're going to need to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 20 as we look at how Paul describes a purpose that he had in his life and in his ministry. And he describes his own ministry as being one of purpose. He is addressing these remarks to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the pastors there, and he has already described to them his persistence in ministry how he was persistent in his service, in his teaching, and in his message, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he describes his ministry and himself really as being purpose-driven, and I almost hate to use the phrase because it's been hijacked, but that's it. Paul understood that he existed for one purpose, and that drove everything that he did. And I want you to notice how Paul understood there's purpose not only in suffering, but also in serving. Beginning at verse 22, 
And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. That's purpose and suffering. Verse 24, purpose and serving. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now I want you to notice, first of all, the suffering element again. Read verses 22 and 23 with me. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. What was he bringing with him? An offering. He'd taken up the offering. He's on a rush trip back. And you remember, he, he didn't want to stop in Asia. He didn't want to go to the city of Ephesus because he knew that if he did, he would likely be sidetracked or derailed from this thing that was driving him, which was to get to Jerusalem. And so verse 16 of chapter 20 says he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, and Paul describes himself as being bound in spirit. An interesting word, and one that's kind of difficult to understand exactly what Paul means by this. You'll notice if you're reading the King James, the New King James, or the NASB, that spirit is not capitalized. You'll notice if you're reading the NIV that spirit is capitalized. That's where part of the confusion comes in. It's not exactly clear whether Paul is talking about being bound by the Holy Spirit or being bound in his spirit. It could mean either one of those, really. It might be that Paul is talking about being bound in the Spirit of God. If that's what he means, if it's capital S, Spirit, then that means that Paul at some point in some way received a revelation, a directive, a prophecy through one of the New Testament prophets in the churches that he was visiting, which was directing him to go to Jerusalem, telling him that this was the will of God for Paul. So he is bound in that sense to be obedient to the Spirit of God who revealed to Paul that he should go to Jerusalem. Or it may be that this is spirit in the sense of his own inner compulsion and his own inner driving. In that sense, Paul would be saying, I am compelled inwardly to go to Jerusalem. I think that's what Paul is talking about. Back in chapter 19, Paul made the decision. I'm going to Jerusalem and after that I'm going, I must see Rome. This was, these were Paul's plans. That's not to suggest that Paul was planning something contrary to what the Spirit of God wanted. It just means that Paul was compelled. He had an offering and he had given his word to deliver that offering to the churches that were in Jerusalem. And he was bound to his word. He was bound to his compulsion and his drive to get to Jerusalem and to minister to the saints there. And he didn't know what was going to happen. Notice how he says that. I do not know what is going to happen to me at Jerusalem. In the ultimate sense, Paul didn't. He did know that it meant chains and sufferings. But ultimately... Did this mean that Paul was, his life was going to end in Jerusalem? Could be. He didn't know whether it would or not. He had no guarantee on his next breath. From city to city he went, and every time he set foot in a new city, he had a new list of people who wanted to see him dead. And remember, he's only in Miletus because he took the, the land route instead of the sea route to avoid a plot on his life. So that's why he's in Miletus. There was a plot to kill him, and they said, once we get Paul on board that ship, Heading for Jerusalem, we're going to kill him. And Paul said, well, I'm going a different route. So he went a different route. And now the list of people who want him dead grows longer and longer by the day. And he does not know if when he sets foot in Jerusalem, if that means it. It may be that Jerusalem is the last 
city that Paul visits. Because when he wrote to the Romans, he said, if perhaps in the will of God, I may make my way to you, and then from you on through to Spain. He didn't know. I don't know what's going to happen to me at Jerusalem. Well, he does know one thing. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city I visit, saying that chains and afflictions await me. He did know one thing. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer. Chains and afflictions are waiting for me in Jerusalem. That much Paul knew. Would the chains and the afflictions lead to his death? He didn't know that. Would it mean to his dismemberment? He didn't know that. Would it mean an end to his ministry, an incapacitating, debilitating suffering that would put an end to Paul's ministry? He didn't know that. He did know it meant chains and afflictions. This is the man who said in Acts 14.22 to the churches in Galatia, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul knew, and he told Timothy, if you live godly, you'll suffer persecution. This was the man of whom the Lord Jesus said to Ananias when he got saved, he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Paul knows he is about to be shown how much he is going to suffer for his name's sake. I don't know what's going to happen to me. What I do know is that every city I go to, the Spirit of God reminds me, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you have one thing to look forward to. Suffering and affliction. How is this going on? How is the Spirit of God reminding Paul of this? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21, verse 4. Probably just flipping the page for you. Acts chapter 21, verse 4. This is in the city of Tyre. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And the disciples kept begging him, don't go, Paul. Paul's on his way. Don't go, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. Stay here, Paul. Stay with us, Paul. Look at down at verse 10. This is in the city of Caesarea at Philip, Philip's house. As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, Luke says, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, stay away. Agabus took Paul's belt and he wrapped up his hands and his feet and he said, the Spirit of God testifies through me today that when you get to Jerusalem, they are going to bind like this the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. In every city that Paul went to, he was reminded again, suffering and afflictions are waiting for you at Jerusalem. And the Christians in every city were begging him, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. I want you to read two verses back to back. Back to chapter 20. We're going to come back to chapter 21 in a second. Back to chapter 20. Look at verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now read verse 23. Except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. You see a problem with that? Hurrying to be in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God says, bonds and afflictions await me. Are you insane? What is the rush? Well, he wanted to be there for Pentecost. You and I would have said, hey, 
You know, I've missed two Pentecosts in Jerusalem already on this journey. If I miss another one, it's not that big of a deal. I'll stop in Asia for a little while. There's another Pentecost coming up next week. We would have delayed. We would have put that off. Any excuse would have been a good excuse to stay out of Jerusalem, but not Paul. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, knowing, having been told time and again in every city, suffering is all you have to look forward to there, Paul. How do you explain that mentality? How do you explain that? Well, verse 24 explains it, but look at chapter 21, verse 13. After they were begging him not to go to Jerusalem, back in chapter 21, verse 13, Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound and even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why are you crying? You think I have a problem with suffering? I'm not scared to suffer. I'm prepared to be bound. I'm prepared to suffer. I'm prepared for the chains, the afflictions, all of the stuff that awaits me. I'm even willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus at Jerusalem. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, since he was so stubborn, since he had his mind made up, since he was bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, Luke says, we all fell silent remarking the will of the Lord be done. We're not going to convince him to avoid Jerusalem. And all of the Christians were saying to Paul, Stay out of Jerusalem. It's not necessary. And I'm sure that those seven men that Paul was traveling with would have said, Paul, we'll take the offering to Jerusalem. We'll make sure that they know that you delivered this. That wasn't enough for Paul. He was hurrying toward Jerusalem. Was he just a martyr? Was he insane? How do you explain a mentality like that? Paul understood that God has a purpose in suffering. He saw it. Paul saw it as something that the Holy Spirit had allowed to come into his life to perform a purpose, a function. There is a goal to suffering. It's not a pointless evil. And Paul understood this. Paul understood that when you and I suffer affliction, it's not aimless and pointless and God is not pulling out His hair wondering what to do about it. That God is actually manifesting His grace and manifesting Himself and His goodness and His love, and that God is accomplishing something in the midst of the suffering. It may be that God is purifying you. Or it may be that God is purifying His church. Or maybe He's disciplining you, or disciplining His church. It may be that God is allowing you to suffer so that you can experience His comfort, so that next time somebody around you suffers, they can experience His comfort through you. All of those things God does in the midst of suffering. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, Paul said to them, Don't be surprised by these afflictions, brethren, knowing that we are destined to this. Philippians 1.29, To you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His name's sake. It's a gift. It's a gift. That's hard for you and I to comprehend. How can the difficulties, how can the afflictions, how can the trials, how can the physical suffering be a gift of God. But it is. When you suffer for His namesake, it is as if God is handing you a gift. You're being persecuted for Christ. And so Paul could say in Philippians, I rejoice in that. And it is because he had that mindset, that understanding of the purpose of God in His sufferings, that he would set his sights on Jerusalem and say, I have to go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for me to fulfill my ministry, and so I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem All the while, he knew what awaited him there was sufferings. Well, Paul, what if it means death? 
Are you prepared for that? Verse 24. I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself. I'm prepared not only to be bound, but also to suffer death for His name's sake, He said in chapter 21. You weep, you break my heart, you beg me not to go to Jerusalem. I'm not worried about suffering. I'm not even worried about death. If if ultimately the suffering brings me to the point of death, Paul considered that as gain. That's far better. Friends, that is reckless abandon. Death could not deter him. Suffering could not deter him. All that Paul focused on was fulfilling his course, finishing his ministry, and completing the task that God had given him to do. If that meant suffering, that was fine. If that meant death, I don't consider my life as dear to myself. Now that explains a lot, that perspective, doesn't it? Explains a lot about Paul. Because we've seen him model this mindset time and time again in the book of Acts. Whenever he's in the city and his life is in danger, it's the believers who grab him and rush him out of the city. It wasn't Paul who was running from danger. It was Christians who rushed him out of Jerusalem. It was Christians who led him down through a basket in a wall from Damascus. It was believers who took him out of Thessalonica to Berea and then out of Berea by night and away from, from there, from the suffering. It was always Christians who were doing that. This explains why Paul would rush out into the middle of that theater surrounded by thousands of people shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they've dragged Aristarchus and Gaius into the midst of that theater and they're getting ready to beat them. And Paul's trying to rush in and it takes the Asiarchs and the other Christians begging with him, Don't go into the theater. They'll kill you. They'll shred you. And he wanted to go in. Finally, they persuaded him not to go in. It explains why Paul would go back to the city of Lystra after being stoned there and left for dead. It explains why he'd be hurrying to get to Jerusalem, knowing that only suffering and afflictions awaited him. You think Paul thought of himself as indispensable to the plan of God? I don't consider my life as dear to myself. If we were sitting there, you're one of those Ephesian pastors, and you're sitting there listening to the Apostle Paul say, I don't count my life as worth anything. Listen, it's not that Paul didn't consider human life as worth anything. It's that he did not consider his own life as something to be preserved at all costs. And if we were listening to Paul, we would have said, are you crazy? You are the apostle. You've written all of these books. If you die, who will visit Rome? If you die, who will write 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and Philippians, and Ephesians, and Philemon? But we wouldn't have said that because we wouldn't have known all those books were being written. But we would have thought he was absolutely indispensable to the plan of God. How could Paul die without so early in his life? And Paul says, I'm not indispensable. Paul really honestly believed that if he were to die, everything would go on just as it should go on, that God would carry on the work without him. We think we're so indispensable in our little area. It's, it's, it's right to have that focus and that mindset and that passion to do what you do and to pour yourself into it, always understanding, hey, the Lord is free to replace me at any minute. And if I were to die, the work would go on. Christianity wouldn't crumble. The church wouldn't crumble. That was Paul's mindset. Is this just false humility? You think he's just trying to impress the Ephesians? I don't think so. This was really how Paul viewed life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, We walk by faith and not by sight, and to be present here in this body is to be absent from the Lord. And then Paul says, We prefer, prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. I would prefer to die, Paul says. This is before he gets to Jerusalem. If I had my druthers... I would be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I'm 
caught between these two choices. I can depart and go to be with Christ, and to be honest with you, that is far better than staying here and serving you. But if I serve you, you get the benefit. If I go to be with Christ, I get the benefit. I don't know which one I want to choose. This one's far better than staying with you folks. Rather go to be with Christ. Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share, my part of his body to fill up the sufferings that are lacking in Christ's sufferings. That was Paul's view of life. I'd be willing to bet there's not a person in this building this morning, myself included, who shares that mindset with Paul. Do you? I'd be willing to bet there's not one Christian out of 100,000 in this country that shares that mindset. In truth, in reality, all of us view a lot of things as dear to ourselves, and our life is only one of them. How many people sitting here, if given the choice, I can stay here with my wife and kids, or I can depart and go to be with Christ? Would that be a hard choice for you? i got to be honest with you, I would choose my wife and kids. It's not that it's going to cut eternity short with Christ, it's just that I don't share the the same type of passion and mindset that Paul shared. We have to be honest about that. Hardly one Christian in a 100,000 would say, well, maybe if your wife is miserable and your kids are miserable, you might say, I'll get part and go to be with Christ. That's better than at 24 hours in my house any day. <laughs> maybe that's your perspective. But in reality, there are a 100 things that we count as dear to ourselves, and our life is only one of them. Not for Paul. I have to choose Christ. I don't consider my life on any account as dear to myself. I don't consider it worth preserving at all costs. I don't consider it worth something to hold on to, to to keep a fix on, to improve my life. For Paul, that wasn't even an issue. If he did that, then he wouldn't be able to fulfill the rest of Acts 20.24 so that I may finish my course. And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I don't count my life as dear to myself so that I may finish my course. You see that? If he considered his life as worth preserving at all costs, it would cause Paul to not do certain things. He would make certain unwise decisions. And if he allowed all of these things to become more dear to him than Christ, all of those things would make fulfilling his ministry and finishing his course all that much more difficult, if not impossible. So Paul says, I don't consider my life as worth preserving at all costs. If I did that, I wouldn't be able to fulfill my ministry, to finish my course. It's a racing analogy. One of Paul's favorite analogies, he uses it in a couple of his different letters. I want to finish my course. I want to finish the race. I haven't finished the race yet. But this is the way Paul viewed his life and ministry. It is as if when he got saved, the Lord Jesus laid out for him a a course. Here's the starting line, and here's the finishing line. And Paul, with his face in the dust on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus said to him, in effect, go. And he never stopped, never slowed down, never looked back, never hesitated, never questioned, never second-guessed. And he just ran and ran and ran his course till he could run no more. That was how Paul viewed his ministry. I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to do, and I am going to run like an athlete who wants to win the prize. Although Paul knew that he wasn't pursuing a prize that was perishable, he was pursuing a crown that was imperishable. 
And so Paul says, I'm going to run my course. In other words, I'm going to fulfill my ministry. This is the ministry that he says, verse 24, that he received from the Lord Jesus. Paul had been given a ministry. Paul had been given certain things to accomplish. The Lord had delivered those things to Paul. And here, speaking about five years before the end of his life, Paul says, I haven't finished the course yet. I have to go to Jerusalem because going to Jerusalem is how I'm going to finish the course. And I can't consider my life as worth preserving at all costs or I wouldn't fulfill my course. I wouldn't finish the race. I would say it's time to retire. It's time to set back. It's time to loosen up a little bit. If he considered himself worth preserving at all costs, that's what he would have done. But he doesn't do that. He's got a race to run. And I've got to cross the finish line. And I've got to run well as a disciplined athlete. I have to fulfill the ministry that I have been given. What was that ministry? to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. The same ministry that you've been given. To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. This is what Christ had appeared to him for. This is why Christ had saved him. When Christ said go, Paul knew what he needed to do. He was going to spend his life testifying solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. He was an ambassador whose ministry was one of reconciliation. And so he saw his job as that of persuading men to be reconciled to God through Christ. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul was giving his testimony to Agrippa, Paul was relating to Agrippa what the Lord Jesus said to him on the Damascus road. And here is what Paul, here is what Paul said, quoting Jesus, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. Right? Go. Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only of the things which you have seen, but also of the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified through by me through faith. For this reason I am a appearing to you, Paul, to make you a witness of what you have seen and what you will see. So Paul knew. The ministry I have received is that of testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, When God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb, revealed His self in me through His grace, He was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul says, from my mother's womb, he set me apart for this ministry, and that is to preach Christ among the Gentiles. You think he knew what his ministry was? You think he knew what his, you think he knew where his race was to be run? And how he was to run his race? Do you think he knew what it was that Christ had called him and commissioned him to do? He did. Friends, you've been given a ministry. You have been mapped out a course by the Lord. He has prepared in advance good works for you to do that you should walk in them. He has given you a course to run. He has set forth the track. He has commissioned you to a ministry. He has given you a gift. He has set for you things to start to do and to accomplish and things to do in your life and in your ministry. He has given all of that to you. Now the question is, what do you do with that? And are you running the race? And are you fulfilling your ministry? Or are you sitting on your haunches next to the racetrack, watching everybody else run by. Paul wouldn't sit there for a moment. Why? 
He knew he had to finish his course. And he wanted to run well. So he didn't consider his life as anything. Not worth preserving. If I wanted to preserve my life, I wouldn't be able to run well. And he wanted to run well. He wanted to finish his ministry. What does it take to keep you from serving well? What does it take to keep you from running? Just a busy schedule? Just a lot of activities? A sniffle? I can't do that. I've got a cold. Sniffle? What does it take to keep you from serving Christ with that kind of passion and purpose? There are few among us, and I am not one of them, who knows what it is like to suffer in, uh, to serve during intense physical suffering. Few among us know that. I'm not one who knows what it's like to, to serve in suffering. Paul was. The sufferings didn't deter him. The sufferings just spurred him on, gave him that edge, gave him that willingness to do more. And it's not that he was a, a fanatical, radical, sadistic individual who just loved pain for pain's sake. That wasn't Paul. He was just a driven man who was driven by fulfilling his course. Martin Luther. Martin Luther knew what it was like to serve. By anybody's, by anybody's standards at any time, Martin Luther was an incredibly productive individual. While serving at the church in Wittenberg during and slightly before the Reformation, Martin Luther, in preaching in the church there, he had on Sunday mornings three worship services. There was the 5 o'clock a.m. worship service that people came to when Luther would preach on one of the epistles. Then there was a 10 o'clock a.m. worship service where Luther would preach on one of the Gospels. And then in the afternoon he would preach from somewhere in the Old Testament. Now that in itself, that in itself is enough to shame all of us. That in itself is a preaching schedule that is daunting to any pastor, elder, preacher, or teacher. But on Mondays and Tuesdays, he would preach through the catechism. On Wednesdays, they had a worship service where he would preach from the Gospel of Matthew. Thursdays and Fridays were spent in the apostolic letters. And on Saturday, he preached a sermon from the book of John. One of his biographers said Luther was one of the most, one of the greatest preachers that the Christian church had ever seen, preaching once every other day on average for all of his life and ministry. From the years 1510 to 1546, Luther preached approximately three thousand sermons, some of them several times a day he would preach. And no time for kids? Oh, no, no. No, he produced six of them in rapid succession, almost a year apart for most of them. He lost one of them in infancy, and even during the year that he lost the one baby at eight months old, he still preached an average of once every other day. Prolific man. Well, that was just his preaching schedule. His publishing schedule was quite a bit more rigorous. In 1520, Luther wrote and published 133 works. Now, 1522, it dropped off a little bit. He dropped down to 130 works. 1523, he published 183 works. In 1524, he published 183 works. That's one work every other day while maintaining his preaching schedule. And on Sunday afternoons, if you went to the home of Luther and you sat through lunch with him and his family, lunch would be followed by a one-hour worship service that was for his family and his kids. And then on top of that, he had all of the duties of the church at Wittenberg and teaching in the theological post at the university, which he did for 29 years. And then on top of that, he led a reformation and, and attended all of the councils of the churches and the debates and the public debates and, and all of the personal correspondence between him and Eck and others. Voluminous. Did all of this in the midst of persecution. 
He was a hunted and hated man by the Roman Catholic Church. The Emperor Charles V once said, I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther, my kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul. He hated Luther. If Luther stepped out of the jurisdiction of Prince Frederick of Saxony, he could be legally killed in Germany. But he was protected by his prince, and so Luther stayed in Wittenberg, where he could not be legally killed. He said, to have an output like that, you'd have to be in tremendous physical shape, tremendous physical, mental capacities and abilities. But that's not the case. Do you know that Luther suffered excruciating, debilitating physical handicaps? Luther suffered from excruciating kidney stones and headaches with ringing in his ears and ear infections and incapacitating constipation and hemorrhoids. And he accomplished all of that. In fact, Luther once said of his suffering, I nearly gave up the ghost and now, bathed in blood, I can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately tears open again. Luther knew it was meant to suffer and to serve. It takes far less to discourage us, doesn't it? It's things like this that put us to an open shame. But friends, it's only when we have a perspective like Paul's. I have to finish my course. I have to finish my race. I have been given something to do, and I'm going to complete it, and I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to hound it, and I'm going to do it, no matter what it costs me personally. That's the mindset. That's what it means to be purpose-driven in the truest biblical sense of the term. But that doesn't sell. You want a purpose? Acts 20:24. I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself. In order that I may be able to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Those words were said in spring of A.D. 58. Now I want your eyes to look at some words that Paul wrote less than five years later. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4 where we will close. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Spring of AD 58, I must finish my course. I must fulfill my ministry. Approximately five years later, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Look at that. I have finished the course. Five years separate those two statements. I must finish my course. I have finished my course. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I have to finish. Five years later. Timothy, I'm finished. I've done it. I've... I've done what the Lord has asked me to do. And now the time of my departure has come. But what was it that the Lord had asked him to do? To testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Had Paul done that? Wasn't there somebody else that Paul could testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God to? Was everybody saved? No, but it wasn't Paul's job to get everybody saved. It wasn't even Paul's job to preach to everybody in the Roman Empire. But Paul knew when he got to Rome that... He had finished his course. 
How did he know he was done? Look at verse 16. At my first defense, he's in prison. He's in Rome. Only Luke is with him, and he's writing to Timothy saying, come to me. And, and since his arrest, this is his second imprisonment, in Rome, he says, at my first defense, that is, Paul stood before the Caesar, Nero, Paul says, no one supported me, but everybody deserted me. Well, not everybody. It doesn't mean everybody there, because verse 11 says, Luke is with me. And Luke was there with him. But everybody else had gone. Everybody else had fled. May it not be counted against them. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me, and He strengthened me, so that through me, look at that, the proclamation might be fully accomplished. How did Paul know he was done? Well, he had stood before Nero and preached the way of salvation to Nero. And here at the end, he says, at my first defense, nobody stood with me. Everybody left me, but the Lord stood with me and the Lord strengthened me in order that the proclamation might be fully accomplished. He had preached Christ in Jerusalem. He had preached Christ in Rome. And he had preached Christ everywhere in between. He had preached Christ to peasants, to slaves, and he had preached Christ now to Nero. What's left? What's left? In order, Paul says, that the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Nero didn't order his execution at that time. That's why Paul's writing 2 Timothy. I stood before Nero. The proclamation has been fully accomplished. I finished my course. When Paul stood there and he got done proclaiming Christ to Nero and he turned and walked out of Nero's hearing, the Apostle Paul knew, I have walked across the finish line. That's it. The time of my departure has come. He had been promised by the Lord, you will stand before Caesar. And Paul stood before Caesar and he says, the proclamation has been accomplished. I've done what the Lord has asked me to do. I've served Him well. Friends, Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to you. You know what the worst thing that can happen to you is? The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to live your life completely for yourself and to withhold from Christ your time, your talents, and your treasure. The worst thing that can happen is to get to the end of your life and realize, I haven't run a race. I haven't fulfilled a ministry. I have not done what Christ wanted me to do. I have never solemnly testified to the gospel of the grace of God. That is far worse than any suffering. That is far worse than death. But I do not consider my life, Paul said, of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my race and fulfill the ministry that Christ has given to me, that of solemnly testifying to the gospel of God's grace. May God give us the grace to have that kind of passion and that kind of purpose that drives every minute of every day of everything that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You, God, for this very solemn and very convicting reminder of just how flippant we are toward the ministry, the lives, and the race that You've set before us. Father, we do not want to get to the end of life and look back and realize that we had missed the race, that we had sat on the sidelines, that we had shirked our responsibility and taken the comfortable, easy route rather than a route of sacrifice and service and love and adoration to You. I pray, Father, that You would rebuke each one of us here this morning, myself especially, of the, the things in our lives that we consider 
so dear to ourselves that keeps us from fulfilling our ministry. And remind us again that your grace is sufficient and that your calling is a high calling and a holy calling and that you give the strength and the grace to fulfill everything that you've called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.